Hello and welcome to Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. I'm John J. Miller, Director of the Dow Journalism Program here at the college, joined today by Adam Carrington, who is a professor of politics. And Adam, you've given us a lecture on Roe v. Wade and liberty and privacy and abortion rights. And I want to start off with, with, with a fundamental question about this debate. Why is this issue so passionate? Why does this stir emotions in a way no other issue does? That's a great question, I think, underneath a lot of sort of the vitriol that goes on with this. And I think it's because it's the conjoining of two issues. Uh, for one side, uh, human liberty is at stake. Um, the control someone has over their own body. And to have one's body invaded, to have it uh, uh, violated in some way is a very, not just painful, but psychological scarring idea. But for the other side, it's the right to life. A very life is at stake. So you have two very primal, visceral um, uh, rights being asserted against each other. And it causes, I think, very much an idea of, of I mean, when you're accusing one person of violating someone's body, the other of killing people, uh, it's going to be a, a very nasty, brutal argument because it's getting to very fundamental things about who human beings are and how they should be protected. I want to ask about the, the, the terms we use to describe these, uh, these ideas, the political movements behind each of the ideas you just expressed there. We have mm -hmm. pro-life and pro-choice. You use both of them at the start of your talk. And uh, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm, I'm always looking at words very carefully. And the AP Style Guide, the Associated Press Style Guide, which is the instruction manual for how journalists writing in the AP form, which is many, many journalists, uh, how should they use these, these terms? And this is what the AP Style Guide says use anti-abortion instead of pro-life, and pro-abortion rights instead of pro-choice. In other words, reject the terms that, that both sides commonly use, the terms that you used in, in your own lecture. Uh, what do you think? Do, is, do you have a preference, and, and do these labels matter? Well, they certainly matter, matter as far as making your argument. Um, to call someone anti-choice, which sometimes the the pro-choice movement, or if you said anti-life, uh, says something about what you're, how you're accusing the other side, the other part of the movement. And I, I try to use, uh, especially in the classroom, uh, the terms by which uh, often people try to describe themselves. And I think in that case, um, bringing out that the pro-choice movement believes it's a matter of a choice about how to control one's body and bringing out the idea that the uh, right to life movement believes it's the matter of life. I'm, I, I believe that I'm just showing respect for the sides as I'm trying to lay them out in the classroom. You point yeah. out in these recent Supreme Court cases that the, that the justices have relied heavily on the word liberty and mm -hmm. how they interpret the word liberty to expand abortion rights or protect abortion rights. Couldn't they just as easily use the word life, which is right there with liberty in so many places, uh, life and liberty? Uh, they could, and the answer to that came up in, in Roe v. Wade. In Roe v. Wade, they said, well, what about the fact that Texas, uh, the, 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 ones, the law that was under a review at that time, what about the fact that they believed they were protecting a right to life and that that was a fundamental duty of government? And the answer was that they went and looked at, well, what is the definition of life in the Constitution? And they went and looked at every time uh, the use of the word person came up. And they said that each time it's used in the Constitution, it never mentions people that have not been born yet. 
And therefore, since it hasn't mentioned people that haven't been born yet, there's no constitutional right to life for unborn persons. Um, I think that there's many reasons to criticize that and to see it as, as dubious, but that's what at least the court has said in saying, we will use liberty to adjudicate this argument, but we won't use the concept of the right to life. And that's why there's a stacked deck before the court when the two sides come before it. What's wrong with, with, with defining life the way uh, you just described it there? Uh, the way that the court did? Yeah, the way yeah. they interpret the Constitution and say that, that life always refers to someone who has been born rather than someone who is unborn. Yeah, um, I think that uh, one of the problems at least I would have with it, at least prima facie, something I would want to at least look into is that um, if it says life, then uh, uh, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that uh, we can ask the question, when does life begin? And just because the rights or privileges that we see specifically mentioned uh, of persons only seem to be born, I don't think that that necessarily means those are the only rights that they see to exist. I think that uh, uh, technology, understanding prenatal life, and I think uh, uh, a number of other things bring into, in, into being the idea that uh, it's not illegitimate to take a look at when does life begin and say that's the definition for, for, for what life should be in the 14th or the 5th Amendment. So is Roe v. Wade a classic case of judicial activism? Um, I, think, uh, I think it's very fair to criticize it as such. Um, I think partly that it's, it, it, bases, it, it is not based as much on liberty as on this idea of the right to privacy. And the right to privacy is nowhere in the Constitution. And I think the, the, the devil's in the details with judicial activism. Um, and, and part of what I mean by that is that in, in, in Roe, it's not that there aren't provisions of the Constitution that protect your privacy. Uh, the Fourth Amendment, illegal searches and seizures, uh, the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination, um, a number of parts of the Constitution do so. But what they do is they take the concrete protections that the Constitution provides, the protections that are listed, and they say this creates a sphere of privacy that we can then read our own understanding of additional rights into. And I think that's where it becomes judicial activism. It's not that there isn't a sphere where you are protected from the government in your thoughts and actions. It's that um, you create the, co the concept of a sphere and then fill it with your own content. And I think that's what they did in Roe v. Wade by going from the rights listed to a right to an abortion. We're having this conversation in the fall of 2016. We're talking mainly about a pair of cases that are, that are older. Mm -hmm. uh, Planned Parenthood is about a generation ago, and sure. Roe v. Wade is maybe two generations mm -hmm. ago. But just a few months ago, this summer, the summer of 2016, the Supreme Court had a ruling on abortion, the whole women's health case, also from Texas, like the... Uh, uh, like Roe v. Wade sure. was. Some people said when that came down that's the most important ruling on abortion uh, since Planned Parenthood. Is that true? I don't know if it's the most important. I think it, it, it might, maybe it's tied with uh, the partial birth abortion case, which was momentous for upholding a ban on a type of abortion, uh, Gonzales v. Carhartt in 2007. But I, I would say it's at least tied with it because while that was a major victory saying that regulations of abortion can be upheld, even bans of certain kinds of abortions can be upheld. What this did was take the undue burden standard, home at women's health I should say, what it did was take the undue burden standard, which seemed to be fairly deferential to regulations of abortion so long as they didn't ban it completely during certain times, as long as it wasn't um, 
too onerous. And I think is really up the ante for how much a state like Texas or other others have to do to prove that their abortion regulation is all right. It used to be that there was a lot of deference given to the legislature uh, under the undue burden standard. Now, I think Justice Breyer's opinion has really upped the ante and made it a lot harder, uh, more of a balancing test in the main, uh, how, how do things balance out? And I think that gives the court much more discretion maybe activism than it had before. And it also makes it, uh, in having that discretion, a lot harder for states to pass what's supposed to still be the same standard, but that I think they have made much harder in, 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 in coming down with that decision. Do pro-lifers ever win in court? It seems like <laughs> in recent years, every time there's a major ruling, it's to, it's to strike down some law that's meant to restrict abortion in some fashion. Uh, in general, the 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 outcomes have been more problematic or have been more losing than winning. I, I do mention the Gonzales v. Carhartt where uh, the partial birth abortion ban was upheld in 2007. Um, even something like Casey, there were regulations of abortion upheld. But the idea that, and one reason I picked the cases I did to talk about, you said they're a generation and two generations old, is as far as the substantive question, all we're really arguing about before the court right now are marginal things. How much can it be regulated? The core question, is there a right to an abortion in the Constitution, and does it have the privilege of place over any attempts to try to regulate it? That, for the court, is a settled question, and that's why you ha you, to get at that core issue, you can't look back any closer than 1992. So what, are the, what yeah. are the kinds of restrictions that a pro-life activist in a certain state could look at and hope to pass in a, in, in, in a state capital and have, 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 have uh, survive uh, judicial scrutiny? Well, ones that the courts have upheld would be uh, uh, a 24-hour waiting period uh, before having an abortion, uh, informed consent, meaning that you could try to persuade the woman by talking about fetal development, talking about um, you know, talking about uh, why the state might think it's a bad idea to have an abortion, you can do that. You can have parental consent, uh, de de uh, demand parental consent for minors. Um, and you can do regulations. Now, this is where I think whole women's health is going to make it difficult. You are allowed to regulate, uh, to stop things like the, the Gosnell atrocity and, and, and set up ways to, to make things safe for the woman as well. Uh, but beyond those things, and, 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 and I should say, you know, Roe v. Wade and, and Casey says you could even ban abortions post-viability, post the time the child could live outside the womb. But I think that the demand that, that I think I talked about before with, for a health exception, um, that you have to have a health exception for the mother, uh, I don't think we've properly, properly litigated how narrow or wide of an exception that is. And I think uh, because of that, you haven't seen a third-term ban really go forward many places. Let's talk about yeah. the exceptions for a moment, because yeah. this is a, a common thing you'll hear from pro-lifers say, I support the right to life, except in three cases, mm -hmm. uh, rape, incest, the life of the mother. Let's pick that apart a little bit. Does that, uh, does that make sense? Is this, is this, is this morally consistent? Morally, uh, I would say not, actually. Uh, now, I understand why, because those, uh, or I would say in two of the three instances. Um, now, of course, the instance of rape and incest, and usually uh, the latter uh, is connected with the former in many cases, are atrocious, terrible instances. But the one question that sometimes have to, has to be asked is, to whom must, must punishment be given? 
and I think in those kind of cases, um, it's at least not consistent if you have life versus some other claim, if we really believe life is so important. Uh, at the same time, I think for the life of the mother, I think there is the moral question of if it's a question of two lives, um, should someone be forced to give up their life for someone else? I think that while doing so is virtuous, it might not be something that we should be in the habit of legally demanding and prescribing. What's the difference between life of the mother and health of the mother? Um, life of the mother is where there is a reasonable possibility that the pregnancy will result in the mother actually losing her life, passing away. Health can be defined very broadly. Uh, would this complicate her ability to have future pregnancies? Would, um, would uh, it cause psychological damage uh, to have children or to have children th at this time? Uh, so that's where the difference is. One excludes it to a particular health condition, your life being in danger. The other uh, includes a whole host of other things that would not be life-threatening. And that's where we really do have to have this question, I mean, wi including with rape and incest, is how can we balance the atrociousness of what's happened to, human, to, 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 to women, uh, to put them in some of those circumstances, with uh, the idea that we could be dealing with a life who, have, who has had no fault in how he or she has been created, but may have come out of terribly difficult circumstances. What should the pro-life movement hope for? A constitutional amendment, which the Republican Party platform calls for. Is that what it take to secure right to life for the unborn? Or could it just be a matter of a couple different Supreme Court justices? Uh, well, of course, the amendment process is the best way to do it. And what I mean by best, I should say, is it, it's the most effective. <laughs> Uh, it's the most entrenched to go ahead and say, well, if the court's unwilling to define life before birth as such, then, well, uh, let's, let's define it for them. And, and we have the precedent for things like that happening, the 13th and 14th Amendments overturning Dred Scott uh, with slavery. But um, in the sh I, I don't see that happening in the short term. I think in the short term you have to build by uh, legislation on the margins, selection of Supreme Court justices, and constantly be pushing toward the core issue, which is every time you bring up even the marginal issues, the exceptions, the regulations without going at it itself, you have to rehab the conversation. What is a human life and how does that relate to the liberty of, of mothers? And I think that kind of question just needs to be had in a compassionate way. I think it needs to be had in a civilized way. It needs to be have, had in a loving way. But um, uh, it's only by starting that process that you can get to further entrenched and more permanent protections. As we have this conversation, you and I do not know the results of the 2016 mm -hmm. presidential election, but we just watched the second presidential debate. And in that debate, Hillary Clinton said this, I want a Supreme Court that will stick with Roe v. Wade and a woman's right to choose, unquote. Seems to me not that long ago, presidents were supposed to say, or candidates were supposed to say, I'm not going to have any kind of litmus test. They might, in fact, have had one, but they were supposed to say they didn't have one. Here she's doing a different kind of thing. What, what has changed? I think that the, the problem of, you could say, the politicizing of the court, uh, and I think that comes from um, the fact that uh, the Constitution is becoming so much more of a footnote in too much of our politics, uh, thankfully not here at Hillsdale, but uh, that, uh, and because of that, you can't just talk judicial philosophy. I want a judge who will approach judging in this way. 
uh, it becomes much more politicized, well, will they uphold my policies? Will they basically be someone who will legislate from the bench in the way I want them to? Uh, and I think that, that, that in some ways, uh, it's, it's refreshingly honest uh, for them to, 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 for her to speak in that way because it's at least honest, but I think it's also quite dangerous for an understanding of what, what is the role of a judge. It's to apply and interpret the law in particular cases, not to push a p particular agenda. That's the legislative branch's job. Does it suggest in, yeah. in, in nomination hearings in the future that, that uh, nominees will, will have to explain positions in, in detail about certain cases because right now they shy away from that kind of thing mm -hmm. and, and say I, I don't have an opinion or I, I can't I can't I can't judge and we all kind of think that's not true uh, but are we are we moving toward uh, uh, more candor on this subject well I think uh, what you're going to have is an increasing divergence between uh, s the Senate trying to determine whether to confirm and the nominees the nominee the idea is don't get borked <laughs> you know the uh, the some may remember uh, Judge Bork being too honest, too forthright, too uh, upfront, and then losing votes because of it. So the tendency has been to be as quiet as possible. And I think that will continue until it has costs. And I think if a Senate, if Senates start rejecting candidates because of their lack of candor, I think that would be the incentive for them to start being so again. But until they actually put their votes where their threats are, I think you'll see an increasing divergence of exasperated senators trying to get uh, concessions out of tight-lipped judges until they put their money where their mouth is and, and, and vote them down. Last question, we're running out of time. Hillary Clinton says she wants justices who will support Roe v. Wade. But let's imagine a scenario in which we had a court that struck down Roe v. Wade. Maybe some elections went a certain kind of way. There were some Supreme Court appointments, and we actually had a reversal of Roe v. Wade. What would that mean? Would abortion be suddenly illegal everywhere in America? Or what would, what, what, what would be the practical reality for American women? That's a great question because there's a lot of misinformation on this. If Roe v. Wade was simply overturned, it would uh, become, it would go back to what it was before that decision, which was the choice of each state. Each state would have broad, almost complete uh, freedom to regulate on abortion as it wants. There really is no, there is no justice on the Supreme Court right now uh, including you know, Scalia when he was on the court, Thomas, any of them who are on record as saying there is a right to life in the Constitution for the unborn. They, uh, uh, in fact, Scalia in his dissent in Casey says, if a state wants to have abortion on demand right up to the n end of pregnancy, it's allowed to. It's merely something that the state should be allowed to decide. So that's what would happen. Every, every state would be allowed to, if New York or California want to have very permissive abortion laws, they could. If uh, states in the South uh, wanted to predominantly ban it, they would be allowed to, too. It would just go back to a state decision. Adam Carrington, thank you very much. This concludes week four of Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. To learn more about our online courses, come to our website at online.hillsdale.edu.